0: On air, online, on digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, more on the right to repair machinery for farmers.
2: Once upon a time, hydrostatic drive transmissions, you know, we use them for 2,000 hours and you want to service it, you'd uh, pull it apart, any parts that were tied in there or, or, or needed attention. You could buy individual parts and maybe get it back going for $3,000. And
1: for a couple of new farmers, a big clean-up job in the paddocks.
3: We had a little walk around. Ben said, come on, you know, we'll go and see what we can we can find. So we were walking down these paddocks of really long grass and I was freaking out of snakes and that sort of thing. And then we come out down to a clearing and found Seabrook Creek and that was it for me. <laughs> loved it.
1: Yeah, great story coming up about a couple of brand new farmers and their work setting up the farm. Plus more on the right to repair machinery for farmers. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday. We're in just a moment, a wrap on one of the smallest poppy crops since the 80s. Also today, the different varieties of cover crops out there and how they do improve the soil. And sending Australian avocados to India. That story coming up as well. We'll check the weather as usual. And take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438922936 is that number 0438922936. First up today, the Tasmanian poppy harvest is done and dusted for another season. And it'll go down as one of the smallest crops since the 80s. The dry poppy capsules contain material used to make painkillers like codeine and morphine. Noel Bevan from Extract Tas Bioscience says the company ended up harvesting 2,500 hectares. Half of what it grew last season.
4: as usual, every year is different, an interesting harvest. We had some outstanding results uh, in parts and uh, some average returns in uh, in other parts. Leading up to harvest, it was a most difficult year. Uh, we lost a very significant area, uh, was seventy a thousand hectares through the growing season, um, particularly uh, in the uh, northern Midlands and the South, very disappointing from uh, from a company perspective and and certainly uh, from a growers perspective to lose that sort of area with the wet, very wet spring. However, the crops, particularly along the uh, central north and the northwest, uh, generally speaking, did very well. We had uh, an outstanding uh, yielding crop in the uh, in the Delaware area. There exceeded four tons to the hectare. So. Harvest went well, very mild temperatures, uh, almost uh, you know, void of, of temperatures in the 30s. Quite unusual that way. Uh, heavy dews of the morning, autumn arrived early. The nights were, were better than the previous year. The, uh, the 22 harvest was sort of uh, highlighted by uh, late starts and early finishes, but uh, this year the dews weren't coming in until later in the evening, uh, generally speaking. But uh, no, look, we've had a good harvest uh, off safely uh, in the bag and, uh, yeah, a sense of relief.
5: Have you got any early assay results in yet?
4: Yeah, look, we have. uh, And there's uh, quite a number of assays exceeding 5%. uh, So that's very pleasing. You know, obviously there's some lower ones there as well. But, uh, you know, if you're looking at the the top range, certainly over five, uh, there was quite a number of them. Very pleasing.
5: Obviously, with such a small area that was harvested, and there were a number of districts that had you know multiple sowings, and and they, the crops still didn't grow. There's got to be a lot of people out of pocket this year who's who's been hardest hit. Uh,
4: a lot of the crops were lost; didn't have anything spent on them. Uh, you know, the company pay for the seed and the sowing, uh, and I guess those that were lost uh, at that point in time. After the first sowing, uh, you know, there's been ground preparation and uh, fertilizer, um, but luckily no expenses on uh, on herbicides and fungicides. The guys that prepared their ground the second time and then lost it, uh, you know, they're certainly being hit hard. And then the guys that have grown the crops and have them not uh, yield as they would have uh, expected. Uh, very disappointing. but um, And, of course, then you've got the company that hasn't uh, got that product to process and sell. So, you know, some of the growers have been hit hard, and certainly the company's been hit hard by not having the product there to uh, to utilise.
5: Does this mean that the, the shifts at the Westbury processing plant have been down considerably too? You wouldn't be, you know, round-the-clock uh, processing like you normally would with a, a full complement of, of crop coming in?
4: No, that's right. It affects everyone. You know, we talk about the effect on the farmers and the company, but it certainly affects uh, employees as well. And uh, we've changed our shift so that, you know, there's less of them and that can mean less money for for some of the operators.
5: And the contract harvesters as well, because they've got the, you know, debt on on some of the the new machines that they've been carrying to, to get the crop out
4: of the paddock. That's very, very true, Larissa. Uh, very hard for contractors to make the money that they need to to, to uh, keep the equipment up to date and all that sort of thing. Trucks too, you know, some, some people uh, don't get enough work now to, uh, to start the season. Uh, so it's not where we want to be, but uh, hopefully that will uh, uh, see change in the near future. Is this the reset the industry needed? I don't know that we needed it. You know, the industry's driven by the market. uh, Well, it's getting it's getting
5: that uh, that supply down so that that equilibrium is restored uh, globally.
4: Yeah, look, that 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 would certainly uh, help that side of it. You know, I'd like to see, uh, like to think that our industry is um, going to settle around uh, somewhere north of where it is at the moment. So, two and
5: a half thousand hectares harvested. This has got to be one of your smallest crops ever harvested in Tasmania, would I be
6: right?
4: Uh, Look, it is. I'm not going to say it's the smallest. uh, History might prove me incorrect there, but certainly it's uh, one of the smaller ones. Uh, We did have a small one back uh, a decade or so ago. Look, we want to be north of here uh, and the industry needs to be north of here to uh, to keep everyone in place in the industry as they need to be and uh, generating the the income that's, uh, you know, Desired.
1: Field Operations Manager with Poppy Processor Extract Taz Bioscience, Noel Bevan, chatting with Larissa Smith about the disappointing poppy season. The harvest was just 2,500 hectares. I can remember when it was 30,000 hectares. Coming up, more Varroa incursions in the Hunter Valley and also south of Newcastle on the central coast.
7: This Saturday is the 120th Brim Creek Show and ABC Radio Hobart will be on location reporting all the colour of the festivities. If you haven't got the ABC Listen app yet, we'll be on site showing you how to download it to your smart device and favourite ABC Radio Hobart. And ABC TV's mustard dogs Frank Finger and his Kelpie Annie will be at the show with working dog demos. Visit the Brim Creek Show or tune in via the ABC Listen app or on air this Saturday.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries has confirmed nine new Varroa mite infestations in the Central Coast and Hunter regions. Infected premises have been discovered at Glen William, Brookfield, Loxford, and Sawyer's Gully in the Lower Hunter, and also Yaramalong, Woi Woi, Coolawong, Yamina Beach, and Horsefield Bay on the Central Coast. This will see red eradication zones in those areas expanded and takes the total number of infestations now to 131 since the state's varroa mite outbreak was confirmed in June last year. DPI says it will start euthanising all managed beehives and equipment on the infested premises, with the help of the owners. Barbara Elkins from the Central Coast Amateur Beekeepers sadly knows what it's like to have her beloved bees destroyed. She spoke about what the latest developments mean for the community with Scott Levi.
8: Uh oh, well, they've lost most of them. Have lost everything again. So they had, you know, there was a few people who had a little, a few little beehives here and there on the edges. So they're all gone again and we were using them you know to make our apiary or you know help someone else you know who hasn't got any again but they're all gone so and lots of people i've mentored you know that are really sad you know that we we you know we had a great relationship for years and years they the bees came from my hives you know or we i caught a swarm for them and gave it to them so millions of human hours have gone into this now and um it's just you know, it's very disappointed. We 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 hope, you know, that we have got it, but it's hard to it's hard to Yeah, uh, you know, I, I you can hear me. I can hardly talk. Yeah, you know, just
1: yeah,
2: weak, you know. just terrible. The eradication zone is almost the entire central coast. What does that yeah. mean for the local industry?
8: Well, we haven't got it. And we've got nothing. We've got nothing. There's no, you know, there's no bee hives at all on the coast. There's almost none at all. So all the little, you know, people who had maybe a hundred, they've lost all those. But if people who have two or three, they're all in all the backyards. They're gone. So where, you know, as they put out all the poison traps and things, all the ones that are feral, which there are quite a few still, around in gum trees and probably in people's sheds that don't even know that they'll all go to because we've got to poison all of them. We've got to get rid of all of them. Because can they bring happens. the poison
2: back, or can the other b- bees bring the poison back
7: to to? The po- uh, they hives. can
8: bring the poison back. Yeah, when they put out the the bait stations, they can they can uh, take it back there. They put out bait stations just with stickies in it. You know, with just sticky uh, honeycomb in it, uh, and the bees come to it. The feral ones say, "Oh, here's something
9: for us yeah, all party they, time." It kill the
8: hive.
1: <laughs> Central Coast beekeeper Barbara Elkin speaking there to Scott Levi about the nine new varroa mite incursions in the Hunter Valley and also on the Central Coast areas of New South Wales, bringing the total in number of infestations to 131. Well, yesterday we looked at the issue of the right to repair farm machinery for farmers as the government looks at the issue as well. Today, a farmer from the northwest of Tasmania who's adept at fixing machinery and wants to see a clear pathway for farmers to do more repairs on the newer types of machines and tractors.
2: What they're doing in the corner over here at the moment, that that machine um, had a fire in it at Moree two, two, two years ago.
10: I'm standing in a huge shed on a farm at Moriarty, near Devonport.
2: And haven't been running for two years.
10: This is Peter Radford. He's a farmer, a contractor, and a fitter and turner by trade. It's safe to say he knows his way around a machine. Sounds like my old car.
2: Yep! Give it a, give it a rest. <laughs> We're at Moriarty, not far from the tribe of Devonport, and um, we've been here for about 30 years now, I suppose. The shed's 10 years old.
10: Something that uh, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with is um, an Apple device. You have to, to get it fixed and to keep it in warranty, you have to take it to an Apple store. There's a similar phenomenon in, in ag- agricultural machinery.
2: That's right, and like with, and I don't use brand names, but there's certain brand names that we've used for many years and we've moved around between brands. But once upon a time, hydrostatic drive transmissions, You know, we use them for 2,000 hours and you want to service it. You'd uh, pull it apart, any parts that were tied in there or, or, or needed attention, you could buy individual parts and maybe get it back going for $3,000. Whereas nowadays, the manufacturers don't sell parts for their transmissions, just they sell complete transmissions. So complete transmission for X machine would be in the vicinity of $15,000, $20,000, when I know for a fact that we can you know, repair them for $3,000. And we still do because we... Um, source the parts out of the original suppliers from States or Europe and but I have to judge what I need for next year and order it in it could take four months to get the parts here so we've always got good stock of parts for hydrostats here and some of our, our header components. Wrecking yards uh, they um, buy machinery that's been on fire or been rolled off trucks or whatever, they're all over Australia but as soon as the machine comes in the yard to be wrecked it's within minutes or within a few weeks, you know, that's gutted out and there's hardly any left of it so it indicates that there is a shortage of parts in some case or the um the appropriate price for parts might be a better way of putting it
10: if uh, i have a, a header for example and it, it breaks down in the field i can't fix that myself
2: and you'd be ringing up the local dealer and he would he could fix it there's no doubt about it but he hasn't had got the ability anymore to supply you individual components in that particular item that you want fixed so they're bolt-on items so the mechanics nowadays aren't so much mechanics they're they're fitters so they if if if, to make it simple in your car if you have an engine problem nowadays it'd be cheaper sometimes to have a new engine supplied to you by Hyundai or Holden or whoever it might be that you want the engine done the manufacturer that actually used to take the engine out of your car pull it all apart repair the pieces in the engine that need done put it back together those sort of guys are disappearing in the system it's cheaper to get it made on a from a company from overseas be India or China or wherever it might be can supply your complete engine less than what it costs you to get it fixed here so and to answer your question with, with a harvester if you've got something that's broken down you will get a complete component that you want 20 grand instead of a $3,000 piece of that component to get it going um, and software too, like it's te- technical stuff as well. We got our, our newest machines give us the most down times sometimes, and you think that's backwards. But our older machines, you know, you can fix it with a cable tie and a bit of tie. <laughs> and a bit f- of prayer, f- f- figure <laughs> of speech. But we can keep it going. Whereas the newer machines, the last five years, you need a laptop. The companies won't supply us the software to run that laptop to plug in the, to let you know what is wrong with the machine and uh, a guy come to me a minute ago and, and he wanted a 15-cent fuse. You know, the, the machine, you know, we worked out what it was, but if you plug your laptop in, it would have said fuse number F16 is, is blown, whereas we don't have that information or can't get that information without a te- technical um, guy come out.
10: Sounds incredibly frustrating.
2: You learn to live with it.
10: What ideally would, would you change if you could?
2: It starts at the top. What I'd like to see is companies that, in my little world, manufacturers of machinery that I buy, we want to have more availability of information, of software, to be able to keep our own machines going. Understand that if that software got in the wrong hands of overseas companies, being China or India, or somebody like that, there's a fine line there between them getting that software and going, OK, oh, we can build this cheaper, faster, or whatever. So there's that line there to, to do, but, but... What would I like to see change is governments listening to the real um, problems.
10: In America, just recently, farmers won the right to repair, they call it, with John Deere. Does that give you a bit of hope for over here in Australia?
2: Yeah, for sure. We had a vehicle here, a um, Hilux ute, and, um, sorry, Land Cruiser ute, and had a transmission issue. And because we'd um, had a non-Toyota person do something with it and he was quite a capable person there's no warranty with it $14,000 for new transmission um John Deere and 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 they're all the same that that it would be nice to be able to have the rights to repair your own machine but you can understand if if you tie it together a cable tie and it damaged itself more down the track they're going to say well that was caused by by you not fixing properly in the first place so again there's a bit of grey water there but People who are prepared to pull a transmission of those $20,000 hydrostats apart to put them together or have somebody in town do it for them, they know what they're doing. You know, So it's not as if they're going to do a dodgy on it because you know, they understand if they don't do the right job, it's going to cost a lot more money down the track. So the right to repair your own gear or have somebody with the ability who's, who's probably been trained in the same field should be allowed for sure,
1: 100%. As farmer, contractor and fitter and turner Peter Radford talking to Meg Powell and saying he'd love to have access to parts and software that would allow him to diagnose and fix agricultural machinery. Coming up on The Country Hour, a close look at cover crops and the benefits for the soil.
11: It's changeover season in the veggie patch and the April issue of Gardening Australia gives you expert advice on prepping your patch for cool season favourites. Plus learn about beautiful banksias, blue gingers and Tassie bush foods. Get help with your indoor plants, plus tips on preserving tomatoes and advice on growing spinach. Maximise your joy in the garden with Gardening Australia magazine. Available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: And it seems what's old could be new again in the global cover cropping movement. Cover crops are basically paddocks filled with multiple species to create healthy soils, smother weeds, and control pests. Soil health educator Joel Williams says some of the better performing plants are actually heritage varieties from decades ago.
9: You know, there's a lot of interest and discussion about diversity and diverse mixtures at the moment, and I think a lot of those diverse mixtures have a lot of benefits. I think there are some benefits still to simple mixes too, you know, even having one plant or two plants, a classic, for example, oats and peas is just a classic combination that seems to work really well, they're best friends, but of course we can go beyond that into more diverse stands, and I think the key message that that farmers need to kind of take on board as they navigate forward from there is making sure that they choose plants that have a different functional diversity. So by that I mean you want to have at least a legume or a couple of legumes, you want to have at least a cereal or a couple of cereal, you want to have at least a brassica or a couple of brassicas, some other broad leaves. Um, maybe some grasses. So you want some of the different plant families and because amongst those different families you get different and specific functions. So you want to just, that's what really you're chasing from diversity. It's not diversity per se or diversity for the sake of diversity. You want a diverse a stand of plants because they're different and bring different functions. Some have a tap root, some have fibrous roots, some are deep roots, some are shallow. You want to mix all of those variables up so that you've got more of this what would be called more functional diversity.
5: Can some of these species outcompete each other?
9: Yeah, they sure can. And this is one of the challenges in this discussion about the more diverse mixtures is, well, what, what balance of those should we use? What seeding rates um, should we use? Even what varieties should we use? The, the simple idea of getting a little bit more diversity into the mix can very quickly become... Um, a little bit muddy with the devil in the detail, so to speak, so so that becomes then uh, a little bit uh, trickier to to navigate
5: trial and error, do you try it to see if it, it
9: outcompetes another plant yeah, so plants they, you know, they can be competitive and they can be collaborative. it really does depend and that 's where i 'll admit we, we have some knowledge gaps on exactly. Because it can even come down to a varietal level. Some varieties can work better in mixtures than others, um, and some less so. So it is a bit of trial and error. I would say that, um, you know, some of the companies that, for example, sell cover crop seeds, they're usually going to have a, a kind of a base, baseline mixture probably that they would, a kind of a gen, all-purpose general kind of mixture, I think is, is a good starting point. And key, really, from there, or you know, again, asking neighbours or others who in your region who, who might have a bit more experience there with what's working well for them in your kind of general region, that's your starting point. A general mix like that, or speaking to neighbours. But from there, what's key is just the farmer's observations. You've really got to observe what then what happens um, as you plant that cover crop. Which are the plants that are thriving, doing well? Which are the ones that are not? Maybe the ones that are not doing so well, you might want to either consider dropping them out of the mix, they might just be wasting your money for the seed cost if they're not thriving, um, or maybe your seeding rate of some of those dominating ones is a bit too high and you want to back that off a little to give those other ones more of a chance to then establish. So it's, yeah, unfortunately that's a real challenge. Yeah, it is a little bit of trial and error and um, keen observation skills are required.
5: Have you noticed in some of the research papers that some of the older heritage varieties of of wheats, say for example, older heritage varieties of other broadleaf crops are doing much better in a companion planting arrangement than perhaps some of these newer genetics that are coming into the market?
9: Yeah, they can do, yes. So um, we know for sure that some of those heritage weeds, they produce a lot more root biomass. And we also have evidence that shows that some of the older legumes actually have stronger associations with the rhizobium. Um, and that a lot of our older varieties or even wild types, that they seem to form stronger associations with the soil biology. There's many documented, um, this, this has been documented in many studies. So there is this opportunity for us to maybe look back at some of the older varieties. They might actually do better for a couple, for like two very important reasons. One is, we touched on it there, that the bigger rooting biomass, if your goal is to build soil organic matter, which a lot of farmers are interested in doing these days, to build that soil carbon, it's for sure that plants that grow more roots are more effective at building soil organic matter because it's really roots that build soil organic matter and not so much the shoots. The roots are the, play the starring role. So any variety or plant that um, you can use in the mix to grow more roots is absolutely going to be more beneficial for that goal and then beyond that really um, we're seeing some interesting things out of Canada where I'm based where there's a lot of really good adoption of intercropping happening there. Some of the farmers are observing that also, yes, some of the older varieties of, say, peas, for example, in a cereal pea, again, oaten oat and pea or a barley and pea kind of intercrop, for example, that some of those older varieties of the peas seem to work better under the intercropping system um, than some of the modern varieties. And that's just the simple idea that modern varieties have been bred for the last many decades to be highly productive under monocultures we bred them to grow monocultures of legumes to be highly productive and so that may not necessarily be the best trait to be a companion plant to support a cereal or to work in a mix more collaboratively that may not be the best traits for that so so we are we do have these examples both from the literature and i would say some observations from the field where perhaps there's this opportunity for us to look back in some of the older genetics and find plants that are better collaborators in that sense. Can
5: you see the uptake of cover cropping continuing to grow, not only in Australia, but
9: around the world? I do, for sure. I think we're in the early stages of this movement, actually. and the, Although, it's, of course, it's been going for many years, um, a good 20 years, I would say in some places we've had very kind of really having this discussion more in-depth but really taken off in the last five to ten years. The reality is that the varieties that we use in cover crop mixes currently are, again, many of those traditional varieties that we've bred just more recently to be productive under monocultural systems and um, the reality is that if the goal is soil health improvement and not necessarily production then actually the varieties and the genetics of those varieties need soil health improvement are very different. I really think that currently the varieties that we use for cover crops, as cover crops, are are rather blunt tools. They haven't been bred for that, they've been bred for production, they haven't been bred for big rooting characteristics, for sharing nitrogen, for nutrient scavenging, for kind of these collaborative interactions. They've not been bred for that purpose so they're quite blunt tools. So I think that then really next generation cover crops, cover crops 2.0 where we actually breed varieties of cover crops to be cover crops, I think that we will actually see even uh, much better responses and results from cover crop mixtures because the genetics has been bred for that purpose.
1: As Soil and plant health educator Joel Williams chatting to Larissa Smith about cover crops and the benefits they bring to the soil. Still to come on today's edition of The Country Hour, the new farmers bringing life back to an old overgrown farm. Sending avocados to India and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward.
6: Thanks, Tony. Defence experts say the nuclear submarine purchase announced today is a major enhancement of Australia's defence capability under the AUKUS plan. Australia will buy at least three American-manufactured nuclear submarines and build eight new UK-designed subs. As part of the project, Australia will spend $2 billion over the next four years upgrading the Osborne shipyard in South Australia North Korea has fired two ballistic missiles off its east coast in what's the country's second weapons test this week. Pyongyang yesterday said it had test-fired two cruise missiles from a submarine – The launches come as the US and South Korea conduct major military duels to counter the North's growing threats. And Tasmania's tourism numbers continue to recover from pandemic restrictions with nearly 200,000 more people visiting in 2022 than the year before. Gordon River in the state's west experienced the largest increase in the state with a 45% jump in visitation. While numbers increased across all parts of the state, they remained below pre-pandemic levels. For bulletin at one.
1: Time now to take a look at the weather and Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael.
12: G'day, Tony. How are you going? All right? Yeah, doing well, thanks. Yeah,
1: Excellent. Any rainfall anywhere?
12: Uh, we've had... Uh, there was a few lightfalls around the west and the Tears. Um, Sisters Beach in the north yesterday to 9am today had two millimetres and Iris River had two mil- millimetres as well. And uh, there hasn't been anything recorded since 9am.
1: Okay. Today. And it's sunny in the south, but a bit cloudy elsewhere?
12: Yeah, there's a little bit of cloud around um, with onshore winds about the north and into the west as well. Um, but the rest of the states is mainly sunny around which is, uh, Around which the south is, is very delightful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is it going to keep happening that way? Or what's, uh, what are we looking forward to in the next few days?
12: Yeah, so today will be a um, fairly light light winds uh, northeasterly mainly and coming around to north. But tomorrow, northwesterlies will start developing ahead of a cold front to come through early uh, Thursday morning. Um, And that cold front coming through will be quite strong in terms of winds. We'll get northwesterly winds uh, becoming westerly during the day and they'll remain quite gusty and and fresh and um and strong in parts uh, for most for most of uh Thursday. After that the westerly wind will ease off a bit and we'll just get a light, lighter westerly for uh into Friday and into Saturday. A low a weak low pressure system comes down Sunday but won't affect the weather too much. There'll be a little bit of an uptick in the in the showers on Sunday but uh, it won't it's not a, looking too strong at at this time.
1: Okay, and uh, do we have any warnings at this stage?
12: The only warnings we have is uh, strong wind warnings out for tomorrow for for the southwest and the central west, from South East Cape to Sandy Cape. Um, yeah, and no other warnings at the moment.
1: So we're expecting quite a few warnings around Thursday.
12: Yeah, Thursday could see could see a few more uh, warnings. Especially, there'll be lots of gales around the south and the west for Thursday, but uh, that's to come.
1: Okay, uh, and the coastal waters in swell. What's happening there?
12: Yeah. So, firstly, the winds. The for today we have got north to north easterly at ten to twenty knots about the north and east. They'll reach up to twenty five about the lower east uh, during this afternoon. This evening, twenty five knots, uh, and then northwesterly winds five to fifteen knots about the west. Tomorrow the winds will be west to northwesterly at fifteen to twenty five knots generally, although around ten knots in the morning about the north and the lower east. Uh, and then increasing to northwesterly 20 to 30 knots about the west in the evening. The swells we ha- in the west and south today, we have a southwesterly at one and a half to two metres. That'll continue until into tomorrow, but it'll build in the afternoon tomorrow to three to three and a half metres. In the north, there's a confused swell under 0.5 of a metre. That'll be picking up to around half a metre tomorrow tomorrow. Um, during the day in the east the swells today a south to southwesterly at around one meter although one to two meters offshore in the south a northeasterly swell of one to one and a half meters developing tomorrow and that south to southwesterly to around one meter will be continuing and again one to two meters um, offshore in the south
1: and a couple of wave riders
12: yeah uh, cape sorrel is at one and a half meters currently and mariah island at
1: 1.2 beauty thanks michael Thanks, Tony. See you later, Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you on uh, that weather, a bit of wild weather coming up on Thursday. Uh, now, coming up on the program, we'll talk about sending avocados to India. Also, we'll talk horse breeding as well. And in just a moment, a couple of new farmers are battling to make an old property brand new again.
7: This Saturday is the 120th Brim Creek Show and ABC Radio Hobart will be on location reporting all the colour of the festivities. If you haven't got the ABC Listen app yet, we'll be on site showing you how to download it to your smart device and favourite ABC Radio Hobart. And ABC TV's mustard dogs Frank Finger and his Kelpie Annie will be at the show with working dog demos. Visit the Brim Creek Show or tune in via the ABC Listen app or on air this Saturday.
0: Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Make sure you go to ABC Rural Online. Great story there about the right to repair. Well, if you've ever purchased a cheap fixer-upper house and poured a lot of time and money into making it livable, imagine having to fix not only the house but acres and hectares of overgrown farmland covered in rubbish. That's what Ellie and Ben Sutcliffe took on in 2017 as an affordable way to get the lifestyle they dreamed of. With no farming knowledge, not a lot of time, and a growing young family, they took on the challenge of transforming the farm into a business.
11: Come on, come on.
13: Eve gets in the buggy and she'll stand up in there, two-year-old, and she'll, come on, <laughs> and they do the same. Uh, so this paddock we're currently standing in sort of looked a little bit like that paddock. Was quite a few blackberries and some ragwort. Uh, yeah, there was not much grass here. Uh, we've s- slowly worked on the paddock a year, getting it back to pasture and getting it productive.
10: What does that take? I mean, that's a mammoth task, taking on a farm, and the whole thing's covered in... That field looks like hard work to me.
13: It takes a lot of learning, a lot of mistakes, uh, trial and error, but um, we've had some great people sort of helping us, and uh, we've had some guys grow some potatoes and turn over the field that way, and that, that worked really well. So
10: And uh, lots of trips to the tip.
13: Lots of trips to the tip and <laughs> lot, lots of scrap, scrap binfuls of... Uh, stuff to get rid of. So,
10: Did you find stuff under the the brambles and, and blackberries as you cleared them?
13: We've found all sorts of stuff under blackberries from old implements to hundreds of car tires. So, It's uh, been an adventure.
3: Hi I'm Ellie.
13: Hi I'm Ben. We live
3: in Elliot and
10: farming here and at the moment I'm a stay at home mum. Ben Ellie. Let's start with back in 2017. You two made a decision to go into something you'd not done before. What was that? And tell me more about that. Well
3: we'd just got back from a year off travelling around Australia and decided that Tassie was where we wanted to be, where we'd grown and just went looking for some property to buy our next venture. We decided we wanted just some space around us, somewhere we could grow our own veggies, our own food and just have that lifestyle and, and somewhere to bring up a family too. So yeah, we just went looking around the place and found this property to buy and yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> what did you think of this farm when you first saw it? Yeah, I wasn't overly keen, just seeing how much work needed to be done. I don't know, it, it just didn't seem to work for me. Um, but then we had a little walk around so we, Ben said come on you know we'll just go and see what we can we can find. So we were walking down these paddocks of really long grass and I was freaking out of snakes and that sort of thing and then we come out down to a clearing and found Seabrook Creek and that was it for me. <laughs> Loved it. It was just just beautiful.
10: You really didn't pick an easy like starter farm did you guys? No no we didn't but I guess it was a step
3: into, into farming for us. It was an affordable step for us. And we liked the area as well. And what, what did you have to do over the next few years? Uh, it, it was, look, it was, it was quite run down and been let go a little bit. So we had to fully renovate the house. So that was a challenge in itself. And, and then just start refencing and getting rid of weeds and
10: getting it back to a, a more working farm I guess. What were your backgrounds before taking on the farm? Had you ever farmed or lived on a farm or worked on a farm before?
13: No, neither of us had really done much on farms before. It was more just an idea.
3: It was just sort of the idea that we wanted to have a go at it more from a lifestyle perspective. I think Ben... Loved going out to his grandparents' farm as a kid, living in town. He liked that little escape. So I guess that was always embedded inside of him. But for me, no. <laughs> I grew up on five acres and I never wanted to 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 have a farm until, until I grew up a bit, I guess, and realised I wanted a little bit of space around me. So
10: it's been five, six years since then. What have you had to learn in the meantime? What has it taken to get set up into now a beef operation?
13: Well, I suppose we've um, learned how to fence, learned how to drive tractors and...
14: Good skills. Yeah.
13: Look after cattle and sheep and pigs and whatever else we've tried our hands at. Yeah, learned how to live without not much sleep.
10: (laughs) You had babies as well, so that doesn't help. Yeah,
13: yeah. No, it's been a pretty busy five years, I suppose. So learning... Learning how to manage pastures and weeds and stock rotations. and
10: It's a bit bigger than just home gardening.
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
13: yeah. It's not just throw the cows in one paddock and hope for the best. Like, yeah, just having to move them regularly. And
3: and provide supplements and drench them and look after them properly. Yeah. There's so much more to it than, yeah, just buying and raising cattle and, and letting them run.
13: It's been a, been a big learning curve and it's been good, like having lots of people in the local area around us sort of helping as well so giving us tips and tricks and yeah just having that that farmer to call on to understand what what's happening and because there's so much to learn between this property and we also have a lease block down the road we're running about 180 head we're sort of we're, we're hoping to start planting a few more trees in areas on the farm that have been pretty much blackberries and steep slopes and around the creeks and that and we'll plant them out with some some trees and a bit of native bush we're also working on multi-species pastures yeah taking on a bit more of a regen ag <laughs> approach and um, we are seeing the benefits on the pastures we've done so far so
3: we'd love to go spray free organic at some point that's that is a goal for us as well but at the moment we do need to use some sprays on Some weeds that are just a bit out of control, like like berries at the moment.
10: Ellie, you're still working as a full-time mum while doing this. And Ben, are you full-time on the farm or have you got another day job?
13: No, I've got a full-time day job working in uh, the irrigation industry, so... Keeps me pretty busy, hmm. so there's not a lot of spare time.
10: And are you hoping to one day be on the farm full time, or you want to keep this as a side hustle?
13: Yeah, no, that's a, that's the dream. One day it'd be great to be full time farming, but it's just getting to that point.
1: Ben and Ellie Sutcliffe, who with almost no farming knowledge took on a rundown property at Elliot's a few years ago and transformed it, Elliot, in the northwest of the state. And that story from Meg Powell. The uh, The dog in the background and the the cows seem to be having a good time. Well, it's been a rough few years for avocado growers in Australia. Just last year, devastating images emerged of avos being dumped and left to rot because of a glut in the market. There is hope on the horizon with the Australian government signing a deal giving Australian Hass avocado growers market access to India. With India poised to become the world's most populous country this year, the deal hopes to end oversupply problems. John Tayas, the CEO of Avocados Australia, has told Lucy Cooper it is a game changer.
11: Yeah, it's very exciting news for, for our industry. Um, we've been granted access for Hass Avocados to India, um so we need to do uh, ten trial shipments before that's uh that's uh, f- f- you know in place, and we can um we can trade so we'll be keen over the next couple of months to get those trial shipments in place and then we'll be working through accrediting growers and pack houses around the country to uh, be able to start exporting to India.
14: How long has you know this been under discussion? Is it related to the free trade agreement with India?
11: No, they're really quite separate issues. The, the free trade was um, was uh, last year, I think, wasn't it? And um, uh, w- that was very good because you know w- we knew we were hoping. Well, we're hoping to get access soon, and um, you know those tariff reductions will have a, a massive uh, impact as well on the trade. So by twenty twenty nine, the tariffs will be down to zero from from what's uh, been thirty percent. So that, that you know, having you can't you can't appreciate those uh those tax reductions until you've been. so now uh, now having access to india along with the tariff reduction is just really a game changer
14: has india been one of those markets that avocados australia has been seeking out
11: for quite a while yeah look we have we've, we've been um we with, with the australian government has been uh, working on access to india for for a few years, but I'd have to say that it's gone relatively quickly uh, compared with some negotiations that can take many many years. We're still trying to get access to Thailand and we've been working on that since 2013. So you know they can often take a long time, but this one's been relatively quick um, and we're really happy that we've got a very commercial uh, and uh, commercially viable and, uh, and workable
2: protocol.
14: I think growers will be very interested to hear, you know, what the um, India market is seeking. Are we going to be sending a premium fruit over or is it run-of-the-mill supermarket heading over there?
11: Oh, well, even our run-of-the-mill supermarket product is is pretty good um, compared to what you see around the world. Uh, but really, it's a, it's a market where we'll be targeting that top end Uh, you know there's a lot of people in India nearly 1.5 billion people Uh, if we can get 1% of people to buy Australian avocados that's you know that's a market of 15 million people so we'll definitely be targeting uh, that top end but um, you know we we produce a a range of of products in terms of sizes and and quality and uh, you know we'll be our exporters will be exploring whatever opportunities there are in in that region.
14: With a potential glut another one on the horizon is this going to help ease those dumping issues and, and really find a new home for them?
11: Yes, yeah, so our production in Australia has been rapidly increasing for the past few years and it'll continue to increase um, simply based on the number of trees that have been planted over the last five to ten years. Uh, and simply, our Australian market won't be able to consume the volume of avocados. Uh, that are that are coming, and you know we've known that for a while, and that's why we've been working on trying to open these new markets. Traditionally, our main markets have been Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, um, and they've been good good markets for Australia, but you know they're relatively small compared with the likes of China or India, um, and so that's why we're so excited about about this new access because it's access to such a large market. Um, an avocado market that is really in its infancy, um, but set to r- expand rapidly, uh, exponentially, hopefully over the over the coming years. So we think being such a large market, that's why it'll have such an impact. Um, and uh, and yeah, and we'll continue to pursue uh, other markets um, as hard as we as hard as we can, um, because we do have lots of product on its way.
14: I know a lot of growers always think of Japan as the next step in that premium market access, but they have really strict biosecurity protocols and it's, you know, we're yet to really tap into it. Where does avocados and biosecurity in India all interconnect together?
11: Yeah, it's a similar thing. All countries have, have you know, their pests of concern and, and fruit fly is the one that um, causes us the, the, the most grief so when, when avocados are harvested, they're, they're harvested in their hard conditions. So they actually don't ripen naturally on the tree. They have to be picked and then they'll ripen off the tree. And when they're in that condition, they're actually not susceptible to fruit fly. So the protocol's about um, you know, making sure you're picking fruit that's, that's hard and that it goes through the supply chain and it stays hard and then it's secured uh, either into a shipping container or, or 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 whatever that that can exclude fruit fly and uh, and off it goes so it 's a relatively simple protocol um, and like i say very very workable and um, will allow a lot of growers and uh, packers uh, around the country to to get involved in uh, in trade with india
14: and in terms of timelines, so you've got to go through a couple of uh, practice shipments, is that correct, to, before they can get underway?
11: Yeah, so we have to do 10 successful trials. Um, so we're in the process of working those out now with, with key exporters. You know, we need to make sure that, that they're successful trials, that there are no uh, no issues in terms of, of fruit quality um, and uh, you know, potential for raising Unnecessary concerns with, uh, with, with with the Indian government, so we'll be making sure those tens, uh, ten consignments are, are the best fruit that we can source, so that uh, that's uh, successful and we can satisfy the Indian government that uh, you know our, our industry can can meet the, the requirements of, of India, and then uh, trade can ramp up from there.
14: And where does our proximity to India and shipping and freight? come into play with all of this?
11: Our proximity here in Australia to India is very favourable uh, compared with a lot of our competitors. So New Zealand supplies to India, um, takes you know, takes longer to get to uh, New Zealand, to India, but particularly the South American countries that, uh, that also have, have access, a few of them have access to India. And so we're uh, in terms of shipping shipping times and, uh, and distances, um, you know, we're really in a, in a great spot. So we, we think, um, think India is going to be a, a great market for us to, to build and a great market for us to really dominate.
1: Avocados Australia CEO John Tyre speaking there with Lucy Cooper about the Australian Hass avocado growers getting access to that big market in India. A message from Biosecurity Tasmania as a precautionary measure Biosecurity Tasmania has placed a temporary moratorium on the opening of hives, harvest of honey and honeycomb and the movement of bees and beekeeping equipment for any beekeepers that are in the 15K bee movement restriction area in the north of the state around the port of Devonport. It follows the detection of a single small hive beetle in the Devonport area last week. All commercial and recreational beekeepers within the 15km bee movement restriction area are asked not to open their hives until the end of the month, 31st of March. An interactive map can be used by beekeepers to determine if their apiary or any other property where hives are kept is within the restriction area and that's available on the NRE TAS website, nre.tas.gov.au.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, amid a shortage of workers across the agriculture sector, the stud breeding industry is urging young people from across the country to join the industry to help fill the gaps. Thorough Breeders, Breeders Australia's Fast Track program is now in its sixth year and was developed in response to the industry staff shortages. It's a 12-month traineeship where students work with a stud farm while studying a Certificate Three in horse breeding, a nationally recognised formal qualification. Tess O'Connor, who grew up in Melbourne, developed a love of horses early in life that led her to a career working with the animals through the Fast Track training scheme.
15: I don't know where the love of horses came from. It just appeared probably in my early teenage years. My grandparents had a dairy farm and I really loved going down there and I loved animals. And my dad, he caved when I was in high school and gave me horse riding lessons. So we'd go, we'd drive an hour and a half down to horse riding every Tuesday and I just, it grew from there. And so that was always in the back of my mind. But I went through school and then I studied a Bachelor of Agricultural Science at Melbourne University. And coming out of that, I didn't see many options other than a veterinarian that included horses and I really horses were my passion so I wanted to go down that line and I guess I applied for jobs that were a little bit out of my league I was quite naive and I just had no experience behind me I'd worked in real estate for a few years during uni so through all that searching the fast track program appeared and It gave me everything I didn't have, mostly the hands-on experience for 11 of the 12 months of the course, which I think was very vital for me at that period because hands-on experience really gets you places in the industry whilst also gaining a formal qualification. So fully funded and yeah, I couldn't say no, so I applied and was lucky enough to be accepted on and gain a position in that year's intake and it's gone from there and I've been in the industry nearly three years later, so... I believe this fast-track program also resulted in you heading overseas to Ireland. Correct, yeah. So when I finished the program in 2021, I was really passionate and wanted to keep learning as much as I could. And the TBA, along with the Nolan family, it's the Basil Nolan Junior Scholarship that they fund for you to go over and complete the Irish National Stud Course. So Cecilia O'Gorman, who ran the fast-track program at the time, really put me forward and said did you want to apply for it and yeah I applied for that it was really nice easy application Um, got to speak to the Nolan family and I was lucky enough to go over there six months and it was it's taken my knowledge it's gone tenfold we went over there there's 30 other students from around the world you work on a stud you have lectures every afternoon and it's so much fun you learn so much and I definitely wouldn't be where I currently am without both those courses. On a practical level, you said there's a lot of hands-on experience. Tell us about that. The Fast Track Program really aims to get those individuals that most have never touched a horse or have a passion for racing or just want to see what it's like, but then you have others that have a lot of experience. So it really ranges. But the Fast Track Program, they bring you in for a month at the start of the course to the TAFE campus in Scone, and they give you all the hands-on experience from catching a horse to caring for it, feeding it, rugging it, all those basic skills. So no matter what skill level you are, you're ready to enter the workforce after that month, which I think is really important for those that might know what they're doing or might have never touched a horse. So it brings you all up to speed so when you get on farm, you know a bit of what you're doing and you can get sent out on those jobs and not be a complete beginner from the start. So it really gives you those, I guess, foundational skills along with the theory aspect to really get on farm and be a vital team member. This program was developed in response to industry staffing shortages. Is that still the case? Definitely. If you talk to any manager or someone high up in the industry that's really seen the industry progress over the years, the massive issue they have are staffing shortages. So it's really amazing to see um, studs get behind the TBA and really get young people because you are asking a bit of people, especially on the studs, to move away probably from home and into a rural setting. So you have to really look for those passionate people that really want to be there. So I think it's really amazing that all these studs are getting behind and there's so many other initiatives coming out with staffing shortages and getting young people because I found when I was at university, I had no idea that these programs existed. So I think they're really trying to reach those younger demographics to really get them into the industry at a young age and then fall in love hopefully and keep going from there. So just taking a step back here Tess not many people I would imagine from metropolitan areas would be <laughs> studying agriculture at university what was it just your love of horses that put you in that position yeah i finished school and i had no idea i spoke to my careers counselor i was actually going to go into criminology and psychology I was accepted into that so I was going to complete that but I I remember vividly dad sitting there and mum and being like she loved horses and the lady was like look at this new course that's come out it's really amazing and I think it had a lot of different avenues from ag economics to soil science to the animal side which I was obviously more geared towards so I think that was kind of up and coming at Melbourne Uni there's not that much on offer in Melbourne I think a lot more in Queensland but Yeah, it's just a falling. I wanted to work with animals, and I didn't really see myself working in other areas. So I thought I'd go for it, um, see how I go, and the course was amazing. And yeah, it's taken me here. So
1: stud hand at Godolphin in the Hunter Valley. Tess O'Connor speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Fast Track is open to anyone in Australia who's 18 years and over, regardless of their level of horse experience. And applications close this Friday, 17th of March, St Patrick's Day. That's our Country Hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.